This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 12, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Who is helped by modern zoning regimes? Young people in Seattle are learning that so-called micro-housing, mostly tiny apartments, have been regulated almost out of existence. Vanessa Brown-Calder is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. We talked about regulation and the roadblocks it puts up for affordable living. If you're just out of college and you've moved to a dense, densely populated urban area, you are got your first job, and you don't have kids, you're not married, and you're trying to save some money or pay back your crippling student debt, you might find a dorm room apartment to be a pretty attractive thing, but Seattle, uh, uh, presumably among other cities, has done, taken significant steps to essentially eliminate that as a possibility. So what have they done and why have they done it? Right. So beginning in 2009, Seattle, Washington, developers there were leaders in this thing called microhousing. And microhousing is exactly what it sounds like. It is tiny apartments, so sometimes 220 square foot studio apartments or other dorm-like living arrangements where individual tenants they might share some building amenities like a common kitchen. But because these apartments are so much smaller than average, they're also a lot less expensive than your average apartment in downtown Seattle. And that makes this particular housing market, which is just very expensive, much more accessible for low-income individuals, like someone who's just out of graduate school or just out of college, among others. Unfortunately, what's happened in Seattle is that development regulations, also known as zoning regulations, have over time choked this type of low-cost development out. And it wasn't any one large sweeping reform, but rather just tiny incremental changes to development policy. So among those, um, there were some regulation changes, like all of a sudden, Seattle required micro-housing projects to go through a design review. Well, this makes the process of developing an apartment building, both more complicated and also just more uncertain, which makes it more costly. Then there were also regulations that required microhousing to include certain amenities, for instance, maybe bike racks or common areas. And there were requirements around the size of microhousing. No longer could it be 170 square feet. It needed to be 220 square feet. Very arbitrary number of changes there. But what happened, for all intents and purposes, is that this sort of defeated the purpose. The whole purpose of microhousing is that it's small and less expensive. So now it's larger and, of course, more expensive. So these rule changes in Seattle actually cost Seattle, it's estimated, 800 affordable housing units per year. Now, this uh, piece from uh, Sightline, the Sightline Institute, uh, notes that microhousing, as you say, appeared in 2009. At first, the average home size is 140 square feet. So that's a dorm, it's probably a, not a very big dorm room. Exactly. So uh, was there ever an intent then by Seattle to say, well, these kinds of developments, maybe they attract a certain kind of person or they tend to be ugly or there's some sort of clear rationale that the city and the neighborhoods in which these developments occur are going to be uh, imposing costs on the rest of the neighborhood. 
that certainly may have factor, factored in a bit. Um, there certainly is very strong this sense of not in my backyard in Seattle, Washington, where property owners really like the veto power of going down to the local planning board and asking them to um, refrain from allowing a certain project. And maybe they think that this is because too many people live in microhousing, it's too dense. But remember, downtown Seattle is actually a very dense area to begin with, a um, lot of people living on top of each other. So aside from this not-in-my-backyard sentiment, which definitely plays a role in development regulations, there was also just... Uh, just sort of a typical technique, this just increasing regulation in general, and then the unintended consequences that spring from that. And I think that that's probably more what happened here, rather than anyone coming and saying directly, we need to abolish microhousing in Seattle. Is there ever any consideration given to the fact that these you know, low-income, young, uh, presumably professional people, because even these apartments that are you know, less than 200 square feet, this uh, piece at Sightline points out that those could be $1,400 a month, which may not shock anyone in Washington, D.C. to be paying that much for a, a small apartment, uh, even a very, very small apartment. But for the rest of the country, that's a, that's a huge amount of money. And anybody who can pay that kind of rent obviously has a, has a job that, uh, uh, you know, accommodates that. Seattle, Washington is a very expensive place to live. And I think in the Sightline article, it mentions that you know $1,400 for a studio is very typical in Seattle, Washington. And some of these microhousing units were actually coming in around $900 a month, which although it seems outrageously expensive probably to most of America, there it's a more affordable option. And you have to remember that when you're living in downtown Seattle, you're paying for economic opportunities, you're paying for sort of cultural opportunities, which are all reflected in the price of your rent. You're paying to be in the middle of it, essentially. Absolutely. Who wins from this? I mean, it's obvious that, that young people who might want to live downtown lose, but who wins by having all this, these layers of regulation that essentially prevent this kind of housing from existing? And even if you change that regulation later, you've already had years of uh, prohibiting this kind of, effectively prohibiting this kind of development, which unless you tear down a bunch of buildings and put up this new housing, it's just not going to be there for generations of people. Right. So zoning is actually pretty interesting in that it benefits established interests. So it benefits people who are already living in these areas. Um, they through zoning, so zoning hikes up, it jacks up the price of housing for everyone. Well, if you already own an apartment in downtown Seattle, then that's a good thing for you. You probably like the fact that it hikes up the price because when you sell your apartment, you'll benefit from that. Um, zoning also benefits established business interests. So for instance, if you're a restaurant in downtown Seattle and you don't like the fact that you are now competing with taco trucks that have pulled up on the street outside you, then you're going to go lobby the zoning board to try and do away with that. So zoning in a way is sort of the city's version of corporate welfare. It's almost as if there are some cultural quote unquote problems that come along with having low-cost apartments in your neighborhood or in your area 
And uh, a lot of these regulations are not explicitly aimed at preventing that, but uh, you suggest that perhaps that is actually some of the impulse to have restrictive zoning. Certainly. And the history of zoning is such that we see that a lot. So when zoning first came about in the 1920s, um, there were a few things happening in America. One is that we were sort of on the tail end of the industrial um, revolution. And people were concerned about the health impacts of the ongoing industrial revolution. And they were specifically concerned about people living in apartment buildings that were right next to industrial development. So they said, look, we should separate uses. It's for the public good. We should separate incompatible development types. So we're going to put industrial development in one area of the city, and we're going to put housing in another. But at the same time, there was also an influx of immigrants into American cities at that time. And people who were more affluent were moving out of cities. And so another thing that happened is they said, you know what, in order to make these new communities impenetrable to other folks, to newcomers, we are going to actually also separate single-family homes from apartment buildings. We just won't allow, we'll prohibit apartment buildings in certain areas of the city. And a lot of American zoning practices still reflect that today. Vanessa Brown Calder is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and try Cato's iOS app and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.